Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. There is a certain level of frustration that this is something that needs to happen. It's been a long time coming and should be accelerated as fast as it could be. Today's guest urges UK lawmakers to create a replacement body to the Audit, Actuarial and Accounting Watchdog, the Financial Reporting Council, as fast as possible, almost four years after such a move was first recommended. She lays out the case for the UK government to prioritise better, simpler rulemaking over more regulation when looking to reform the UK's financial services rulebook post-Brexit. She also outlines how boards and investors should best approach increasingly complicated environmental, social and governance regulation and offers tips on how to avoid common mistakes when addressing ESG reporting requirements. Kate O'Neill is a former lawyer whose 30-year career includes stints as Director of European Funds and Hedge Funds at Asset Manager Janice Henderson Investors and Managing Director for Investor Relations at Lloyds Banking Group. Since 2020, she has overseen the creation of the FRC's Stakeholder Engagement and Corporate Affairs function. Hi Kate, welcome to Following the Rules. Thank you. An interesting place to start is with a quick run through of what it is that you do at the Financial Reporting Council. So some people would say I'm the ultimate poacher gamekeeper. I've had a long career in financial services, mainly in funds management before moving into consultancy and investor relations roles, working with corporates, Lloyds Banking Group and Jupiter Asset Management amongst them. I came to the Financial Reporting Council to set up a new function of stakeholder engagement and corporate affairs, linking together our engagement with our stakeholders, but also the way in which we communicate with them. A lot of the work we do in setting standards and codes, we have to do weighty communications in publications, updates, guidance. And also we needed to take on board some of the fairly damning recommendations of John Kingman, which he made in 2019 about how the FRC operated and how we needed to do it better. So John Thompson joined in the latter part of 2019 and I joined in early 2020. You mentioned John Thompson, who's the CEO of the yeah. FRC and the Kingman Report, which came off the back of a series of high profile failures amongst the auditors that the FRC regulates. Mm-hmm. And a key recommendation of that report was to transition the FRC to become the Audit Reporting and Governance Authority, which is a new regulator with more powers to ensure more effective oversight of the audit sector yeah. after those scandals. Could you give us an update on how that transition is developing? So one of the key principles that we are trying to get is improved audit quality. And that is key to assurance, 
for board feeling that they're getting the right kind of internal controls assurance given on the work that they're signing off. But we're not just about audits. We're about improving the reporting that everyone relies on, whether you are an employee, an investor, whether you are a supplier, whether you're a debt holder. It's more than just the fund managers being able to say the accounts will lie. And I think the pandemic has put even a wider lens on what corporates do say and how they deliver on their strategy. But you're right, the corporate failures that triggered the Kingman review, the Bryden review and the CMA review of what the audit market and the FRC did was that kind of touch paper that said, look, enough's enough. Something is fundamentally not working here and it needs to change. So we put together a transformation program and what we looked at was all parts of the recommendations, some of which we could do ourselves by transforming the FRC in the way anticipation of legislation, for example, operational separation at the audit firms where we wanted them to separate out their audit activities from consulting and other fee-paying activities. Because remember, Auditors and auditors act with a public interest element in their toolkit. So it can't just be about what's my most profitable client. It's got to be about, as an auditor, are we looking at this with the scope of a public interest? That's difficult in a commercial environment. So we're very pleased that the operational separation recommendations we made were taken on board by the big four and the smaller firms as well, because they realised that some of the behaviours and culture perhaps was from where they were interlinked and clients who were audit clients were thrown in with ones who were more on the consulting end. It's a long time project. We're hoping for legislation. We've done, we would say, the things they'd like the FRC to do while a slot comes up in the legislative agenda where AGA can be created. And so when do you expect that slot to come up? Well, it has been pushed out a bit further than we would have liked. It's up to the legislative agenda of Parliament. I think every single stakeholder, whether they completely love every aspect of our work, every single stakeholder said, get on with AGA. We may not love everything in the remit, but obviously this needs to happen and happen soon. So there is a certain level of frustration, which, of course, we share at the FRC, that this is something that needs to happen. It's been a long time coming and should be accelerated as fast as it could be. We're cognizant of the fact that the pandemic has shifted some of the timelines on the legislative agenda. There are lots of things on the agenda of the government and against the backdrop of some uncertain economic times as well. But we work very hard with our sponsoring department days to, as I say, do everything we can ourselves while pushing for the agenda item to be raised for legislation as fast as possible. Okay. And so you say you're working with your sponsoring department, which is the business services department. What could or should be done to ensure that lawmakers prioritise getting that transition legislated? I think two things. One is people don't understand that it's not just about if we get audit reform and corporate governance reform done, the City of London will work better. When there is corporate failure, for whatever reasons, and we've never said that the point of ARGA is to end all corporate failure. Corporates will fail for lots of different reasons. For example, Blockbuster didn't fail because of bad corporate governance or audit. It failed because the market changed completely. Its business model was no longer relevant. But where it can be prevented because of bad corporate governance, bad assurance, either from auditors, internal controls, it affects, shall we say, the person in the street. 
Because if a corporate fails in a regional city where a lot of the jobs depended on that corporate, suppliers had contracts with that corporate, pensioners had saved their pensions in that pension fund, employees lose their jobs. It's got a much wider knock-on than just fund managers lost their investments. So we spent a lot of time in the last two and a half years saying it has this ripple effect all over Britain. It's that important. And it's a piece of legislation that is supported. There isn't a groundswell of voices saying, oh, this doesn't need to happen. Because people forget a regulation until sometimes the worst happens. And what we're saying is boards, and most of them do do the right thing, right? You know, there aren't many people saying, oh, I don't care about my duties. So management prepare the accounts, talk about the prospects of the company. The board sign those off, having received the assurance about them. Auditors look at the numbers and say, yes, these are in place. The stewardship code that we're responsible for requires fund managers to give examples of the engagement they have with management and boards about corporate governance, about their operating procedures, etc. So it's all linked. It's not just about one thing. So obviously it's my pet passion, but we would say this would be something that keep our trust in corporate Britain. People can rely on statements that are made by corporates. And it's not just investments, as I said before, it's about employment, it's about suppliers, it's about everyone who is touched by the activities of companies. So if this is a giant plug for let's get on with legislation, absolutely. And the government has said when legislative agenda can get this through, we're all for that. So very much hope for in the first quarter or first half next year. So Argo being created in 2024 would be an achievable timeframe. And obviously the new business secretary, Lawrence Schnapps, has only recently taken up that position. Have you been in touch with him about prioritising the creation of Argo? Yeah, look, we've had six Secretary of States in three years. So it is something that we have to explain to different people. I think he is well briefed by his team about the agenda. He knows about it. And let's face it, Bayes also has the energy brief. So there's a lot going on there. But the civil servants who work with us on the legislation, we are told, are keeping him apprised of the process and where it is in the agenda. So it's fantastic to have outlets like this podcast to remind people about the importance because the work first outcome is people saying, well, that's just about auditors. Why do we care? It's that wider ecosystem that I think people have to be aware of. And particularly in uncertain financial times, you should be able to rely on things that you are being told by corporates about their prospects, what their intentions and strategy are. Okay. And which of the new powers coming your way as a result of that transition do you consider to be the most pertinent in the current environment and why? I think when there have been corporate failures, people often say, well, where are the directors in this? We get that you whack the fine on the auditor. We get that fund managers lost their money. But where are the directors of the company? Because currently under our powers, we can only enforce against directors who are members of a professional body as an accountant or an auditor. If you were on a board and you were not a member of those organisations, we would not have any powers to pursue you as a director. Now, one of the disappointing parts of the agenda was the dropping of what's called SOX light, the equivalent of the US Sarbanes Oxley. And we scratch our heads a bit about that because we think if a libertarian based economy like the US could put it in place pretty quickly after Enron, why wouldn't we be able to do it? However, we lost that one. We think that opening up of the Corporate Governance Code next year to consult on strengthening the requirement for internal controls and assurance for directors to sign off that they have understood everything, the risks, the numbers, 
will strengthen that a bit more. So having the powers when we become Arthur will be important for that missing link. We also think there's the competition issue of the audit market. No stakeholder in the consultation said this is a market that works from a competition perspective. The dominance of the big four have meant that the choices are very limited to market participants from a corporate perspective. Competition, though, takes a long time to change the dynamics of the market and we need to protect audit quality at all costs, but we will need those powers to actually put in place some measures. And the one that the government has come up with is what's called managed shared audit, where you would give smaller audit firms an ability to share an audit to not just build capacity in the marketplace, but also build capability to open up the audit market from a competitive standpoint. That will be one of the important powers that we get when we become other. And the last one is we will be put on a statutory footing. So at the moment we are paid by voluntary levy and that's fine, but we have not got a statutory levy in place and that gives us that authority to make sure that we are funded in a way and by the right type of entities in our ecosystem. Would that lead to an increase in funding for you? No, I don't think it does, but it would make it compulsory. And while we're happy to see that most of our stakeholders pay the levies, it's always much more solid ground to be in when it's statutory footing. And you mentioned Soxlight and the mm. disappointment of that ultimately being stripped out of the reform package that is scheduled to come on the legislative agenda, hopefully in Q1 next year. What is it about Sox or Sarbanes-Oxley that you would particularly like to see adopted in the UK? Well, it's that it's very easy to blame the auditors and where auditors have fallen short and very highly publicised examples of that. They have been fined and there has been enforcement action against them. It's where the board has a fiduciary duty and it has to take seriously that when it is being presented with information by the company, that they are assured, and remember this is about assurance, the veracity of the statements, that they're based in fact, that the due diligence and risk management has been done. There was a huge amount of lobbying about the burden that a SOX would put on boards, that you wouldn't get people to be directors, that there'd be a flight of capital from public to private. I don't think anybody saw that in the US. So I would think that that was perhaps overstated. But as I say, we didn't win the day on that one, but we think it was a missed opportunity. And the FRC's chair, Sir Jan Duplessis, recently commented on the need for the FRC to follow through on those proposals that you just referenced for the UK to have something similar to the US Sarbanes-Oxley, which yeah. is what Soxlight refers to. And he said then that the FRC would seek to address the need for that with a review of the existing corporate governance code and that that would be consulted on later in 2022. Could you give us an update on that review and the consultation in terms of when it will take place and the ideal outcome from it? Yeah, so we haven't opened government for some time and we're very clear that we're not going to open up the code and say to everybody, have a poke at everything that's in there. And remember, the code is a principles-based code, not a rules-based, but we are happy that it is used and is seen worldwide as a gold standard of corporate governance. What this is about is about making sure this will have much more requirements around that internal assurance around what directors are signing off on? What is the process? What is the assurance and proof that they're going to receive to be able to sign off with authority that the accounts, that everything that they're promising to their stakeholders is actually true? So that's the way in which to make that linkage to their corporate governance responsibilities. And I think that is 
a linkage that has not been explicitly put into the corporate governance code and we'll look to look at the language of how those principles will be articulated and then through our monitoring make sure that companies are actually doing what we're going to be asking them to do in the corporate governance code going forward. The consultation will start probably in the second quarter of 2023 where we consider that there will be a massive response to this because the corporate governance code has not been open for many years. But we do think there will be interesting voices and perhaps some pushback on there. Well, aren't people doing this already? What's the point? What we want to say is, yes, okay, there are many directors and corporates who are doing all the right things. But if that's the case, then saying that we just want to see that the way in which they're assuring the information that they're signing off on is really robust, that should not be a great stretch for them if they're already doing this now. So you're hoping that through that consultation and review of the Corporate Governance Code, you'll be able to implement changes that will get you some way closer to what SOX would have introduced? Yeah. Look, shall we call it the spirit of SOX? Yes, it's the idea of the board having to be absolutely happy with the way in which numbers and other statements have been assured and whether that's through strengthening internal controls, demanding different or more of your external assurance, whether it's auditors or other people. Yes, that's what we want to be able to say that process has been undertaken. And obviously, all these additional powers that you're referencing and this review of the corporate governance code itself, this is all a huge amount of work coming on to you later over recent years. What skills and talent profiles does that require you to now be hiring that perhaps you haven't needed previously? When I joined the FRC in early 2020, there were 180 people. I think we're touching about 440. So it's been a period of rapid growth, which needed to happen to be able to do the things that came out of the review. And we've talked about some of the Kingman recommendations, but also to set ourselves up with the bandwidth to be able to do all of the things that we need in our very wide remit as we get these new powers. So where do we hire from? In some cases, it's the big and smaller firms. It's been great to see people a bit like myself coming from the corporate world or some of the financial services sector generally with skill sets that perhaps historically the FRC didn't have in its wheelhouse. And I think that's building the confidence externally that we're up to the task of taking on more powers and a wider remit with our stakeholders. We're saying it's not just about the stick. Some of it is about helping our stakeholders become better so that they can comply with our requirements in a more collaborative way, but in an easier way as well. But you need the right skill sets and workforce to do that. So for recruiters or financial services professionals listening to this podcast who might be looking for another job, what type of individual would you like to come knocking in the coming months? I think people who have a good experience or insight into things like risk management, internal controls in areas like the funds management industry, which is, I think, quite interesting on how they look at their requirements, particularly in our stewardship code area where we're looking to help fund managers be successful signatories to the code because you have to reapply every year. So the assessment of our fund managers' stewardship activities has required a certain type of experience. Obviously, people who understand auditing, accounting and actuarial, and that's highly skilled people, the people who have come from the firms with those experiences really enjoy setting new policies, new standards, new requirements. So we don't want to gear ourselves up too early for when we actually have the legislation passed and ARGRA is created. But you've got 
a suitably ambitious hiring plan for the next year or two. But also, like many people out there, whether you're in the private or public sector, it's hard to find people with the right talent and skill sets, people who understand accounting, actuary, audit requirements, standards and codes. In the policy areas, in some of our other areas like stewardship and corporate governance, people either coming from funds management or corporate governance expertise. And then, of course, good lawyers. And in our supervisory division, you do need people who get how the people we are supervising work and interact. You can't be doing that from an ivory tower. You need to have people who really understand how to undertake audit quality reviews, how to talk to the firms about increasing capacity and capability. And it's a competitive market. And we, like many of the private sector, are struggling to find people with those type of skill sets we need. And hiring could become even more challenging over the coming months and years. We're speaking not long after the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, set out a package of around £30 billion of spending cuts and £24 billion in tax rises over the next five years. And the measures will see around 55% of households worse off, according to the Treasury's own analysis. And the Office for Budget Responsibility, which checks the government's fiscal plans and provides economic forecasts to go alongside them, confirm that the UK has tipped into recession. What's your view on how best to make the UK an attractive place to do business in such a challenging economic period? And how can that be achieved without undermining trust and confidence in UK markets? Yeah, we're about better regulation, not more regulation. So... We scratch our heads a bit where we hear from businesses, not directly about the FRC, but generally, you know, too much red tape, paperwork, etc. And we think businesses are not served well by those advising them who say, well, you've got to do 250 pages and this has to look like this. And if you don't report on this, you'll get whacked by the regulator. There has been, particularly in the area of the ESG, way too much complication around what are really about who are your stakeholders what are you telling them and what is needed for growth i think confidence is always at the basis of any growth story there has to be belief that the business the service whatever you're selling is going to be supported and that's got to be about transparent communication setting out your store i'm not setting up a business i'm not running a business which would be i imagine incredibly difficult at the moment but i think being able to reassure your stakeholders whoever they are customers suppliers the banks who lend you money the investors who give you money that the way that you're conducting your business is being done in a way that is transparent and also sets out not just all the successes but also some of the risks and challenges as a business that you're facing we often say if you're not shell or bhp you don't have to report like you are just talk about the business how you're doing it how you're managing it and a lot of people are being told to overcomplicate or feel that they have to overcomplicate, which must be feeling burdensome. And I think in difficult times, being open and transparent with your stakeholders has to be where you start because that's where confidence starts. Do you think the government has done enough to instill that confidence that you think is needed in UK markets? Look, the government has said they want the UK to be this growth engine. They want it to be recognised for being a gold standard place to list in London and that both internal and foreign investment should be encouraged, of course. But if you spoke to some of our stakeholders, they feel that sometimes the emphasis of the agendas wax and wane from time to time. There is this sense of uh, helping businesses concentrate on the things that matter for them and keeping people feeling supported and not confusing them about different agendas. So for example, climate, there are some people who say that's absolutely number one and then other people say, well, 
it's not actually number one for this sector. And so there can be confusing messages. So I think the more transparency and the more simplicity that you would receive from government, some of the government agendas probably would help some of businesses. And obviously this comes as the UK is seeking to establish its footing and presence in international markets post-Brexit and has taken a a wholesale review of the regulation that financial services in the UK is subject to as a result of Brexit. So are you saying that it is important for lawmakers as they go through that process to ensure that whatever changes are made to the rules, that transparency and simplicity is at the core of those changes? Yeah, I would say so. And look, let's face it, a lot of our big businesses in the UK are international business. And so the worst outcome would be any international regulatory arbitrage. Well, I have to do it this way for these people, but not for these people. And as companies grapple with some of the post-Brexit requirements, we need that they're very clear about if you're already saying that in this area, you probably can just replicate it over here. You don't have to go and do it again about how you're presenting it or what channel you're putting it through. So the bigger companies probably have the breadth and the resources to do this. But I think you've got to hold your nerve a bit saying, no, no, I've already told you that. It's on page 50. I don't need to replicate it in another chapter. And that takes a lot of discipline by companies to really say, I've already told you that. don't need to tell you again in a different way. Okay. And you've mentioned climate concerns and ESG compliance a couple of times as well. And obviously compliance with ESG requirements continues to cause headaches for boards, investors and clients. The regulatory expectations, as you've referenced, are currently quite unclear or they're in development or overlapping with requirements in other jurisdictions. And there is both those in the market seeking to capitalise on that uncertainty, as you always get, and those who fear inadvertently being seen to be greenwashing or advertising products as green when they're not green enough because requirements are confusing. What advice would you have for boards and investors in terms of making the right decisions in this environment? Just aside, I think the stewardship code has helped because it's about how do investors demonstrate that as stewards of people's money, there should be a high bar because the criticisms can be and have historically been of you're investing this money, you're taking a fee for it. But actually, I can't work out how you vote on many of the things that interest me. Also, how are you challenging the boards and the executive committees of the companies you're investing in? Are you having the right conversations about the right thing? And so the stewardship code raised the bar, which gives comfort to investors that we are insisting through the code that the investors do their work in a way that does actually marry up to the way that they say they are doing it, that their outputs reflect that they have robust conversations with management. They talk to the board about issues like corporate governance. The first signatory signed up in 2021. Now we have 236 signatories to the code and over £40 trillion of assets under management reflected in those signatories which is this vast international pool of money. And you can say, oh, I meet with Lucy four times a month and we discuss decarbonisation and this and this. We need to see how those discussions actually have an output to either the way you invest or divest, etc., for fund managers to retain their signatory status. And we think that goes away to stopping the idea of greenwashing, if you want to use that phrase. I think most boards and large companies appreciate that you have to set out your store and be really open about it. If it's going to take you 10 years to get to net zero, it's not a competition. You're not going to be a better or worse company because you've been honest about that. You've got to set out how you're going to do it and you've got to give updates on your journey. If you say, actually, in the work we do, 
our carbon footprint is very small because of our operations. That's fine as well. And some of this has been a bit of FOMO. Well, I heard that the guy down the street's doing this. We better do it as well. If that's not relevant to your business model, it's quite okay for you to say, actually, we don't have that consideration because this is the way we do our business. And I think this FOMO means anxiety levels get very high when you get to the annual report because the board's saying, well, I sit on four other boards and they're doing it this way. Maybe we should do it this way. And I think that has led to these kind of anxiety levels, meaning people feel that they have to do things when they don't actually have to. And it's fine if they explain why they don't do it. On the government side, there is more pressure, and rightly so, that the board complies with the UK Corporate Governance Code, but also puts at the heart of their activity the interests of the stakeholders. And so I think where people are veering away from their stance and being confused by that idea of, oh, I've got to say this and I must say that. And I heard that company X is doing that. We should do it. Telling your story simply and with the data points to prove it is far more effective than vast pages in an annual report, which really can veer into the marketing of your company rather than really setting out how you do it and why. One of the issues is the S part of the acronym. I think at least understood part of the ESG, what does social mean? Uh, It is challenging for companies. And if I can use another well-touted word of the moment, woke washing, where people are saying they do this in terms of diversity, in terms of gender, in terms of a whole bunch of things, and how much does it really stand up to scrutiny? And I think as companies grapple with what the S means to them, the accusations of woke washing are growing. And I think there is much more scrutiny from societal groups, from employees, pensioners, and other parts of a company's stakeholder base than ever before. What advice would you have for lawmakers on how best to arrive at rules that make ESG reporting as transparent and standardised as financial reporting? Well, the standardisation has got a way to go to because of the data issues. Until everybody is really looking at the same pool and it's apples with apples, there still will be issues there. But lawmakers have to start with the what what are you trying to achieve here? What's the end game? And obviously ESG has emerged not because it's fashionable, not because it's trendy or woke. It has always been that companies should be able to explain the risks to their business model of these elements and explain what they're doing about them to mitigate them and manage them. And it's got to come back to the risks to a business model and achieving the strategic objectives you've set out. Your comment on comparing apples to apples, how can we get to that goal? Well, I think with things like corporate governance codes, and obviously we're not the only regulator in this space. The FCA has put out quite a lot of work in recent weeks about ESG. One of the issues too is sustainability. People talk about sustainability of the planet, sustainability of climate issues. We're also talking to people about sustainability of business models. You've got to be able to say, this is my plan for the next five years. I'm going to be around in the next five years or 10 years or what have you. So what we're trying to say is don't just always look at the E and the environment. That's only part of the story, an incredibly important part of the story. But I think when we give our guidance, and there's lots of it on the FRC website talking about 
our expectations as a regulator about ESG, how people should be reporting, how they should be complying with corporate governance code. We see that as key to give as much help and guidance as we can. Not all the time, we're sparing with it, but when we give guidance, it's to help companies comply, not necessarily perfectly on day one, but to be confident about talking about how they're going about it. Because this is a journey for many companies. Many small companies haven't had to have these kind of reporting requirements for a long time. And we want to help people get there in a way that isn't burdensome, that makes sense, but also reflects the need to do it because it is for the benefit of people who rely on really good reporting and on all aspects of a company's prospects. So for lawmakers, don't look to put in place a quick fix that you switch a button on and it happens. I think realizing this will take time and people are managing businesses against not just economic challenges, it's human capital. Where are you going to find your resources? Which doesn't mean people shouldn't take their obligations seriously and comply. But I think looking for a quick fix will never be the answer here. It's too complex for that. Well, thank you very much, Kate. It's been really interesting to hear more about the FRC's views on the many challenges that businesses will be facing in the coming months and also the process of transitioning to become the Audit Reporting and Governance Authority. It'd be great to get you back on several months from now once you've got more clarity on the latter. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me on today. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.